This is Health First Talks, where we share information to help the healthcare community meet the daily challenges of medical emergency readiness, patient safety, and compliance. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Health First Infection Prevention and Control podcast. We've got another exciting topic to talk about today. It's exciting and very timely. Uh, On this podcast, we'll be talking about COVID-19 vaccines, what you should know. It's really timely given some of the late breaking news about vaccines that are being administered only in the past couple days. Um, In this podcast, we'll be talking about the main vaccines available in the US and some common concerns. This discussion will be led by two leading experts in their respective fields, both representing the medical and dental fields, Dr. Scott Cohen and Dr. Fiona Collins. So I'll hand over the mic over to Dr. Collins for um, her perspective around the two around the main vaccines in, in the US. Thank you, Grace, and uh, thank you everyone for joining us. So let's start by looking at the main types of vaccines that are available in the, specifically in the US. Uh, these are either messenger RNA or known as mRNA based vaccines, or they involve protein based technologies. Uh, none of the vaccines involved use live virus and none of them involved use inactivated virus either. So there's no SARS-CoV-2 virus involved in any of them. I'll start with the two mRNA viruses and then hand over to Scott, who will address the other three vaccines currently involved in clinical trials. So as we look at the mRNA vaccines, I think at this point, we're all aware uh, that the two that are currently available are from Pfizer and Moderna, both very, very recently released. Uh, They are both mRNA based and they have a lipid nanoparticle coating. So they're encased in this coating. Pfizer one has uh, four lipids, doesn't really matter. The Moderna one has three lipids. So basically that is protecting the mRNA. So how do these work? Well, let's let's look first at the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself. We all know at this point that one of the coronavirus proteins is a spike protein on its exterior. And this spike protein binds to the receptors before fusing to our own cells and entering them. So that Uh, logically makes a focus on the spike protein as an antigen for which antibodies are created in our bodies, an attractive proposition for a virus. If we look more specifically now at the mRNA that is being used for the vaccines, it encodes the spike protein and it's encased in this lipid nanoparticle coating. When it's administered, it's actually the coating that fuses to the cell after which the mRNA enters the cells. In a similar fashion, to SARS-CoV-2 itself. The mRNA uses amino acids and a couple of other uh, chemicals in our bodies naturally to create the spike proteins. We're not creating the virus, only the protein. Our body then recognizes it as a foreign body causing an immune response. The same as any other foreign body would cause an immune response. So as is typical for an immune response, it involves the release of macrophages that will then migrate to the area and destroy the cell. In the meantime, a signal is also sent to our B cells and our T cells as part of that immune response. The B cells produce the antibodies against the spike protein. 
the T cells really act as guards for us. They're watching out for the next time the antigen might be encountered. In other words, in this situation, the next time would be the spike protein on the coronavirus itself, um, providing, conferring immunity to fight that coronavirus before it can replicate and cause disease. I'm now going to hand over to Scott and he's going to talk about the uh, technologies involved in the other vaccines. Thanks, Fiona. Yeah, I get the easy one, uh, thankfully. Um, I, most of what I'm going to talk about for the next minute or two, I can say uh, what she said, because the end product of the mRNA vaccine, of course, is producing um, the spike protein particles, which then, you know, uh, promote an immune reaction, both, a, you know, likely uh, an antibody or humoral reaction, as well as a cellular mediated one. But the reality is when you're doing this type of vaccine that I'm talking about, which is an antigen or protein-based vaccine, you're, doing, uh, you're using a vaccine that has been around for technology-wise many, many years. For example, the hepatitis B and flu vaccines use this same technology. Now, maybe the viruses aren't growing exactly the same way. You know, We've all heard about chicken eggs and things like that. Um, but the reality is what you're doing is you're taking specific proteins, antigens, you're mixing them up in a bowl, and you're injecting them in a certain way so they elicit a reaction such that the body produces a response. Now realize that those antigens are part of what can, is contained in that RNA virus. And what happens is then when you then see the virus, a real virus, you know, weeks, months, or years later, then the body's immune reaction is re-engaged and the, the body says, wow, I know that, I don't like it, I'm getting rid of it, already has a reaction kind of stored in you know, B and T cells, i.e humoral and cellular immunity. And then what happens is you get what's called somewhat of an amnestic response, i.e. a more aggressive response than if it's the first time you're seeing that, which is why typically with a lot of viruses or other things, you know, you get it once, you build an immunity, then the second time your body has enough uh, memory cells of sorts uh, to kill it off before it becomes, uh, you know, clinically evident or clinically significant. It's interesting when we look at, at the initial goals of the FDA, you know, the goals for getting approval, and we're not talking formal approval, we're talking about what has actually happened with Pfizer and likely will happen with Moderna in the next day or two, and that's the emergency use authorization. The FDA's goals were 50% efficacy. And certainly I'm not sure whether it's 50% reduction in uh, disease, 50% reduction in severe disease. I'm not, I don't recall what the numbers were specifically, but uh, we vastly, vastly beat that. And basically all of the vaccines under most circumstances are over 90% effective. And, and honestly, Anthony Fauci, um, you know, said this, uh, you know, best I think, and that is, you know, it, it's just quite amazing uh, that we're able to get these kind of results. And, you know, just, you know, we'll, Fiona will talk about safety in a moment, but I can tell folks that this technology has been worked on for many years. Now, the fact that we just implanted the coronavirus spike proteins into this technology is new, and that's what's happened over the past nine to 10 months, but the technology has been worked on for many years now. Uh, so don't think it's quite as new as uh, people say, or people are worried it is. It's something that's been studied um, you know, for quite some time. So with that said, you know, common questions come up, like I'm gonna pass it off to Fiona, uh, is it safe? So really, uh, so far as, as we've seen, the safety profile looks really good and really promising. We don't know long-term effects yet, if any, 
um, because obviously it's, there aren't enough people who've been vaccinated for long enough. So it's still going to be followed uh, through the remainder of the clinical trials, as well as obviously in individuals who are receiving the vaccine uh, to prevent COVID-19. So if we look at local and systemic reactions, the local reactions that uh, for both um, Moderna and Pfizer have basically been redness swelling at the injection site. It's been a higher level of higher percentage of people who received the vaccine um, compared to those who received the placebo. Uh, but as you know yourself, when you've had inoculations, it's not unusual uh, to have a little bit of pain, sometimes more than others, depending on sometimes who gave it, um, as well as some redness and swelling. So it's, it's not unique to this at all. Um, there were no serious adverse local events. Uh, so nobody was going to the hospital because they had redness and swelling and pain. Uh, it was not at that level that required intervention. The most frequent complaint was pain. Um, I don't think that's any surprise either. So then if we look at the systemic effects, uh, they were obviously also noted and researched and the frequency was actually a little higher in younger people than older people, uh, which personally I found to be a little surprising, uh, but that's how it turned out. The majority were mild and moderate in severity. So it was things that we would uh, probably have expected, uh, fatigue, headaches, muscle and joint pain in some cases, uh, some nausea or vomiting, uh, chills and fever. There were some reports of swollen lymph glands or, or lymphadenopathy uh, that were plausible. It was described as being plausible that were, they were re related to the vaccine, but not proven. Uh, there were four serious fevers, um, what called grade four level in the Pfizer trial. However, two were in the vaccine group and two were in the placebo group. And there were no other systemic uh, serious reactions requiring hospitalization or an emergency visit uh, in the trial. Vomiting and diarrhea in that trial was similar between the vaccine and the placebo. Serious adverse events were extremely rare. There were two cases of anaphylaxis in the Pfizer trial, the cause is unknown, and there were no severe hypersensitivity reactions in the Moderna trial. Uh, in the uh, Moderna trial, there were also uh, one severe nausea and vomiting case and two facial swellings. They, they uh, resolved or responded without any further uh, complications. Now, if you think about the number of people that were tested, um, I don't recall the exact number for the Pfizer uh, trial, it was a huge number, and in the Moderna it was more than 30,000. So it's really um, overall a very good safety profile. And uh, with that, I think uh, Scott and I would like to uh, do some myth busting as you described it, right? Absolutely, yeah, I think, you know, there, there are certain um, side effects or worries out there that you know, we can, I guess, start off calling a myth. Maybe our not a myth have some basis in truth. Some are clearly uh, myths and, um, you know, are, are not even in the realm of, of having a serious discussion about. But the first one that I really liked is microchipping. Um, so this is, this is not a federal government attempt to microchip everyone in the population such that they can be tracked. Um, uh, not at all. But there are, there's another one. So what do you think, Fiona, about the placental antibody issue? There, this is something that's come up. Yeah, there, there, there was a suggestion by uh, two researchers or former researchers that it causes uh, female sterilization uh, because it contains a spike protein that has uh, something called Syncton 1 in it, which is important for placental formation, therefore it's anti-placental. In fact, there's no basis for this whatsoever. The Pfizer vaccine, uh, 
and it was about the Pfizer vaccine in this particular suggestion, uh, does not even contain synctin one It contains messenger RNA or mRNA, as we talked earlier, and it trains the immune system to identify the real virus. It does not contain the substance that this suggestion is based on. So uh, clearly um, a, a false concern. What, what about genetics? What have you heard about our genetics in relation to the, I think that's another of the myths that's going around. Yeah, this is, this is a good one. And, uh, you know, I, I had heard, and even on a, a webinar I gave uh, yesterday for our local county health department, um, there were people that were floating around, you know, is it true that, you know, this vaccine, most, mostly they're talking about the messenger RNA vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer, but can they change your DNA, meaning change your, your genetic structure? And I think um, Fiona and I clearly agree, and, and the evidence is out there that, that that is absolutely not the case. You know, you're not going to change your DNA and morph into a different species or, or something. So um, I, I would say that's no. Um, what about the other one? Um, this is a really interesting one, Fiona, that kind of just perked my ears up, although it turns out has probably a, uh, you know, a rational explanation. And that is, what about the incidence of Bell's palsy? Right, so but Bell's palsy, we, we couldn't really uh, put under Mythbusters. Uh, we did, um, but it isn't really, you can't say it's a myth at this point. So there were a few Bell's palsy cases. Now, again, the first thing to remember is how many people were in the tests, both in the control and the vaccine, in the control vaccine group, and uh, sorry, the vaccine group and the placebo, which was the placebo control. Mm -hmm. So we, as we look at that, there were four vaccine recipients and none in the placebo arm of the trial who did develop Bell's palsy. However, when they looked at that, the level, the, um, the, the um, incidence of Bell's palsy in this group was no different to the base incidence in the general population. So it was no different to the general population. For the Moderna one, there were three in the vaccine group and one in the placebo group. The cause was determined to be unknown and there were predisposing factors. So they are going to watch on this, uh, but in the, first, in the first trial, it was the same level as the general population. And in the second, uh, the uh, four individuals who did develop Bell's palsy had predisposing factors. One of the other ones uh, that we've heard about was the, um, the, uh, the PEG, the polyethylene glycol. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Scott? Yeah, you know, so polyethylene glycol is um, a chemical that's used um, in medicine different than ethylene glycol, which is used in automobiles and is quite toxic to the kidneys in higher doses. But polyethylene glycol um, can have a small uh, but distinct uh, profile for causing allergic reactions. Um, but um, we think that the likelihood of it being the triggering factor because of how much is, is in the vaccines is pretty low. And I don't know, Fiona, if you have the specific numbers, I don't, I don't really have them I, here. I think for one of them, it was something like 0.05 milligrams. Um, the other aspect is when you think about PEG, it's been used in the US for many purposes since the 1930s. It's in foods for various reasons. Um, it's in uh, shaving creams and gels, it's in other types of gels, it's in deodorants, cosmetics, fragrances, hair products, and other products as well. So it's not an unknown uh, ingredient by any means. No, not at all. Um, the last one we had under our Mythbusters category 
is uh, narcolepsy, you know, that uh, these vaccines cause narcolepsy. Now, can any vaccines get them and they cause fatigue and malaise um, cause uh, fatigue? Of course, uh, but not narcolepsy per se. Right, and the other interesting so, thing is okay. uh, this, this was in relation to one vaccine and mm -hmm. they've uh, looked, uh, CDC did a retrospective on over a one and a half million people looking at H1N1 and seasonal flu and there was no uh, increased risk for narcolepsy whatsoever. Excellent. Okay, so we're gonna go through just a few more things here. Um, some questions, these are kind of related to some questions that have come up from our local population, but things like how long will, will it last? We're not 100% sure, you know, we do believe initially you get a humoral or antibody immunity that's measurable and that's why, you know, people have tested antibodies for COVID um, exposures. But then there's probably a much longer term cellular medi mediated immunity uh, where you, um, you know, you can actually uh, maintain immunity for a bit longer time. We're thinking though, probably we'll need an every year booster until this uh, virus is eradicated and if this virus is eradicated. So very similar to influenza. We don't think it has the anagenic uh, migration that you see in the flu. So it's not like we'll have to change the vaccine and hope and pray that it hits the right strain here and there, you know, H1N1 or whatever. Um, we really feel that um, it's fairly anagenically stable in that sense um, because of the proteins that we're, we are targeting, those proteins at least are stable. Um, one other question that came up that's similarly related, and it's a really good question that we do not have an answer to is, you know, let's say, you know, I'm a healthcare worker, I get vaccinated, but then I accidentally get exposed to disease. Not that I'm, I'm going to change my personal protective equipment um, re regimen after I get vaccinated, I will not. But let's say I do get exposed. Can I still, even though I have no symptoms, and even though I've been vaccinated, can I transmit this disease to someone else? That's an as yet unknown. And I don't know, Fiona, if you had any thoughts on that. No, I think we all have to take um, all the precautions we've been taking both in professional lives, but also in our personal lives uh, and not go into stores without a mask on, for instance, once you've been vaccinated, because there are lots of other people behind you in the queue who, or the line who have not yet been vaccinated. And so there, we, we just don't know the answer to this any more than we know exactly how long it's going to last for. Very true. So briefly, we're going to get into uh, just some of the meat of how, how, it's, uh, how the vaccines are being uh, delivered, distributed, and immunized. Um, and then we'll kind of wrap up for you here. Um, the, the delivery method and timeline for this is really a little bit up in the air. We know that FedEx and UPS have been intimately involved and have helped uh, folks um, you know, like Pfizer set up these pretty unique uh, shipping and monitoring box devices. Really kind of cool. They've been doing it for months so that now that when they're shipping, they know how to do it. Um, and that's probably how initially they're going to do it. And, and we've seen initially Pfizer um, has done that and has gotten that out to um, local areas. Now realize of course, that there's gonna be multiple avenues for getting this out there. And each of the, the manufacturers is using a different distributor, um, but there's local health departments, hospitals, pharmacies, and then you know, we don't know yet, uh, but we might wind up using these federal points of distribution or PODs uh, through health departments. That's all up in the air yet because of the focus right now on getting uh, specific groups immunized. And I don't know, Fiona, if you want to kind of give an update on what we what it looks like the initial uh, rollout is going to be too. 
Yeah, based, based on what we know, um, the, the initial vaccinations will be going to uh, essential uh, healthcare workers, but in particular, the frontline workers who are exposed to COVID-19. Um, and really, if you think about it, they're putting themselves at great risk, more risk than anybody else. And it's, uh, it's absolutely appropriate. Um, you hear people that want, want to skip the line occasionally, but this is totally appropriate. And, and after that, it will be other medical care and uh, other healthcare workers, as well as high-risk individuals. But of course, it's depending on the state. So some states will prioritize some groups more than others. Um, the over 65 is another group that will be prioritized. Uh, so what happens in places like prisons, some states will prioritize them because they're in a, um, a close, um, close living environment um, over, for instance, the general population. Um, I, I don't know what you've heard. I heard that by May, June, with if all goes well, that the people who want to be vaccinated uh, will have been able to at least have their first dose by then, which would actually be incredible. Yeah, I, I agree. It looks like that will be the case. Um, we're hoping high risk folks by you know February, March at the latest April, uh, and then everyone in the population, hopefully within a month or two after that, uh, which honestly is, is just absolutely amazing that the um, you know, public health system uh, plus manufacturers and government have been able to bring this all together uh, in record time. Yeah, and in the meantime, as we go along towards that goal, we're going to get a lot more information from the remainder of the trials um, and a lot more information from how the distribution is going and uh, how the vaccination rate is going as well, which will be important. All right, so I guess with that said, um, you know, we just wanna thank you for coming today. Um, you know, please everyone get vaccinated um, and look forward. Obviously, we're going to do some other podcasts. Um, we will uh, we'll look forward to talking to you then. Thank you.